The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. In 1972, a novel came out. It's a story of a young woman, uh, wife, mother, who moves to a new community in Stepford, Connecticut, and she notices something strange. She notices that all the wives are like zombies. They're just these obedient, um, passionless, opinionless, opinionless. Wow, that's hard to say. They have no opinion. (laughs) Women that just simply go, yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. You are the greatest, dear. You are the master, dear. You are wonderful, dear. Uh, Two movies actually came out of this by the same name. I've never read the book or seen the movies, but I think I can picture what this scene would look like. Uh, There's also a term that came from this, the term Stepford Wife. Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, I've heard it, I don't know, I heard it a long time ago. And it, it refers to a person, maybe a wife, maybe not, but somebody that just simply goes along, a yes man. Someone would just say, yes, dear, okay, dear. Yes, sir. Okay, sir. Whatever you say, sir. I'll do what you say, sir. Unfortunately, many of us, many people, try to turn Jesus into a Stepford Savior. Someone who never disagrees with their choices in life. Someone that will never oppose their will. Someone that will never correct their theology. Today we're going to see that Jesus has no interest in being your Stepford Savior. As a matter of fact, Jesus is a very offensive Savior. If you would, please open up to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 59 through the end. It's page 892 in the Red Bible, page 1311 in the Children's Bible. Up to this point in time, Jesus is growing in great popularity. Just the day before, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And so there were 15,000 people. This is a megachurch that Jesus built in a year. And so there are 15,000 people following him. They try to force him to be king because they love him so much. He escapes, crosses the Sea of Galilee, ends up in Capernaum where he starts to teach. And as he starts to teach, the things he says starts to rub people the wrong way. So we are finishing up what I think is the longest chapter in the New Testament with the outfall or the fallout of Jesus' preaching. Okay, So let's look at John 6, verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue. You know what? Actually, let's do this. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word today. Because we're going to focus on the holiness and perfection of God's infallible word. John 6, 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. God, we come to your infallible, holy, disruptive, offensive word. We come many times arrogant, trying to correct it, manipulate it, mold it into what we believe. But I pray today, God, through your Holy Spirit, you would humble us to submit to it and to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you this question in a in various questions, but it's the same questions. Are the scriptures teachings hard for you? I don't mean hard to understand, although sometimes it is, but hard to follow, hard to comprehend, hard to swallow, hard to believe. Do they disturb you? Do they disrupt your theology? Do they interrupt your lifestyle? Do they object to your understanding of yourself, of the world? Do they object to your understanding of God himself? I hope your answer is yes. Because in our own flesh, the word of God is extremely offensive, constantly confronting us, drawing out of us the areas in our life that are not godly, calling us to repentance and to trust in Christ. When you are hit with the real Jesus, he is offensive at times. If your picture of Jesus is just this warm, hippie Jesus that says peace, a children's Bible Jesus that never offends anyone, then your view of Jesus needs to change today. This is what happened to the people in the synagogue at Capernaum. They were following Jesus. Everything was safe. Everything was happy. He'd grown in popularity. He turns water into wine. Who doesn't like that? He heals people. Who doesn't like that? He turns five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Who doesn't like that? Everybody loves Jesus. This is the storybook Jesus, right? The, 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 the children's Bible Jesus. It's easy. It's safe. But then Jesus starts teaching, and he starts teaching doctrine, and he starts offending people. And so the question is, what do you do when Scripture disagrees with you? What do you do when the teachings of Jesus disagree with you? How do you respond to that? And there are three responses we're going to see in this passage. There are certainly more. But these are three typical responses to the parts of Scripture that we don't particularly care for. The first is turning back from Jesus. The second is turning to Jesus. And the third is turning against Jesus. Let's start with the first one. Turning back from Jesus. 
Look in verse 61 with me. It says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Literally, does this make you stumble? Does this make you want to desert me, to to walk away, to fall away from me? Does this make you indignant? Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. As you may notice here, Jesus is not trying to remove the offense. He's not trying to kiss and make up with them. Jesus pours fuel on the fire. Jesus comes to them and he he says something that would offend them even greater. He says, the reason why you don't understand what I'm saying is because you do not have the spirit of God in you. The reason you don't understand what I'm saying is because you only think with your flesh. And you know what? Your flesh is good for nothing. All your rabbinical training, all your education, all your college degrees, they're good for nothing in understanding the things of God. It goes on, verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. Jesus, and we're going to get back to this later, but Jesus is saying, listen, I am not surprised that people are not believing. God is in complete control. We'll talk more about that later. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So let's get an aerial view of this. Imagine if you're up in a helicopter and you're following Jesus around for these two days. Okay, at first you see him with 15,000 people. It probably looks like a rock concert. People are rejoicing and delighting. Jesus escapes across the Sea of Galilee. He makes it to the uh, synagogue in Capernaum, and he packs the place out. It is filled. I don't know how big the temples were, maybe a couple hundred people, but people are standing there, and they're expecting Jesus to continue to grow in his fame, to teach them something amazing. And so Jesus starts talking. And as he's done preaching, they start to leave. In this aerial view, you see hundreds of people dwindle down to, to, to 50s, to 20s, to just about a dozen people that stay with Jesus. I, I don't think this is in the uh, manuscript of how to plant a church. Everyone flees away because what they're looking for is a Stepford Savior. They're looking for a Savior that will support their theology that will support their lifestyle, that will support their dreams. And Jesus has no interest. Jesus wants to proclaim the truth of God. You know, the truth is often very hard to hear, isn't it? I remember when I graduated from seminary, I I moved up to Green Bay and worked at New Hope Church. And I preached my first sermon there and I was confident and I felt good and I got down and people were very gracious to me. Hey, way to go. Thank you for that. Things of that nature. And, and I met up with my friend. I'll just tell you who it is. Ryan Fralick. Ryan, are you in here? No, he's teaching. Okay, good. We can talk behind his back. I said, so Ryan, Ryan, what do you think of the sermon? And I just remember, we were sitting at a Great Lakes Sandwich Company. I remember him looking at me and just going, it wasn't very good. I'm just like, this is like telling a baseball player that they can't hit, right? Like, this is my entire professional career. It wasn't very good. I'm like, oh, no. And he's like, and I know he was telling the truth because the people before that told me I did a good job, after my second sermon said, that was much better. So I know he was telling the truth. 
I remember one time I was uh, coming back from a, from a pastor's conference, and I was pumped up. And I came back, and as I'm driving back to Green Bay from Minnesota, I get this phone call, and my worship leader for youth group, which I led, couldn't lead that night. So I'm like, you know, I'll lead it. And so I get up, why'd you laugh? <laughs> you already know where this is going now. <laughs> oh, man. So I get up there, and, you know, I'm playing, Jesus, lover of my soul, you know. And the kids stop singing, and I'm like, what's wrong? So I, we stop in the middle of the song, and I'm like, what's going on? Don't you guys love Jesus? Why aren't you singing? And one of them bravely said, you know, we would sing, but <clears throat> your voice is throwing us off. And so <laughs> if you would just quit singing, we would love to sing. So this was really an attack to my desire to become the first Billy Graham, that one American Idol, But it was the truth, right? Sometimes the truth is hard to take. But it's true. Jesus doesn't just want to fill your ears with sweet nothings. Jesus conveys an amazing gospel, don't get me wrong. But Jesus came to tell us the truth. The word of God tells us the truth. And so when we come to the word of God, when we read the scriptures, we have a choice. We can either let our theology stand in judgment of Jesus, or we can let Jesus stand in judgment of our theology. We can either critique the teachings of Jesus, or we can let the teachings of Jesus critique us. When we look at this passage, when we see the mass exodus, we see a people who are not interested in being conformed to the word of God but they're interested in conforming the word of God to them. And so one of the reactions to Jesus' hard teachings is that people turn away from Jesus. They turn back on Jesus. The second response we see is turning to Jesus. After the masses of people leave, Jesus looks at the disciples, and maybe there were a few more, I don't know, but there weren't many. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? What a piercing question, isn't it? Jesus says, do you want to leave me too? And then there is overzealous, knucklehead, lovable Peter, who responds with this amazing confession of faith. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? What a great question. I can imagine Peter saying, Lord, it is true. Your words are hard, sometimes hard to understand, but hard to internalize, hard to believe, hard to live out. They are hard, but where else can we go? Where else can we go? It's a great rhetorical question. You know, when the truth and the realities of life weigh on you, where else do you go? There's a lot of places we can go. We can go to food. We can go to TV. We can go to video games, to fantasy. We can go a number of places to relieve our stress. But ultimately, all of them fall short of Jesus because none of them do what Jesus does, which it says here, 
gives us the words of eternal life. None of these things can bring us true and intimate and wonderful fellowship with God. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he goes on and he says, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This term holy means that Jesus is set apart for a special purpose. He is set apart by God. In our house, we have this big red plate, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a special plate, and you only get it on your birthday. Or if you get like straight A's in school or something, it's a special place set apart for a special purpose. And what the disciples are confessing here is that Jesus is the one that has been set apart by God for the most glorious purpose ever which is to redeem humanity, to bring us eternal life, to bring us communion with God. And so where else can we go? Because we believe that you are the holy one, the set apart one, the one given by God for our salvation. Where else can we go? And where else can we go? There is no other savior set apart by God. There is no other name by which we can be saved. There is no other mediator between God and man. There is no other remedy for our sins. There is no other fountain of blood by which our sins can be washed away. There is no refuge against the wrath of God and the attack of Satan. There is no other bread that will satisfy our souls. Where else can we go? Nowhere. Jesus has the words of eternal life. You know, if you're like me, you have your ups and downs in life. And maybe you come here today and it was a hard week or you're dealing with something very, very weighty. Where will you go with that? There's a lot of options. But there is only one option that brings us to God, that reconciles us with the Lord of the world. I met with a friend few weeks ago, who I was concerned about. Someone that I love very deeply, haven't seen them in a while. And so we sat down for lunch and I asked him, I said, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing great. Everything is fine. And I knew better, even if he didn't. And so I asked him, are you running from God? And he thought about it and he said, yeah, I think I am. I said, are you a Christian? And he said, Honestly, I don't know anymore. And I thought about this. Those are big words to say. But there is a comfort in Jesus' response to Peter's confession. Look in verse 70 with me. Peter makes this great declaration of faith. And Jesus responds this way. Funny Jesus. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you? Again, uh, this teaching is probably offensive to many of you, as many of Jesus' teachings are. But this is sweet to those who are in Christ. That once God has chosen us, he will not unchoose us. I rest in this fact that we belong to Jesus. If we have come into relationship with Christ, if we have seen the truth, we can't unsee truth if we have tasted the goodness of our Savior, tasted the goodness of God, we can't go to other things for food. Well, we can, but it's temporary. 
God talks about a dog returning to its vomit. After a while, we say, no, we long for the sweetness of the Lord. There is this great comfort when I minister to myself and to people who say, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. And this great comfort is this, that the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, promises to lose none of his sheep, that he will leave the 99 to pursue you, to run after you, to chase you, to hound you, to bring you back to himself. And so we see these responses that many will turn back from Jesus, that others will turn to Jesus. And finally, we see there is one in this crowd that will turn against Jesus. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, and then John adds this editorial comment, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then jump down to verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, there's two things about Judas in this passage that I find really fascinating. The first is this. In verse 70, again, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is the devil. Jesus says, I chose a devil to be one of my disciples. Again, not the most effective way to plant a church or start a ministry, right? But he chooses a devil to be part of them. And the second thing that's really interesting to me is why does Jesus mention Judas at all? Why does, why does John elaborate on Judas in this passage? I mean, it seems kind of out of place. It's still a year away till the bad thing's going to happen. Why do they mention him? And so this is what I came up with, and it, it might be a little bit hard to explain, but hopefully you can track. Remember the last 24, 36 hours that the disciples went through. They were with the, Jesus. There was 15,000 people surrounding them. Jesus' kingdom seemed to be growing. Jesus seemed to be winning. Jesus, Jesus seemed to be on top of the world. They wanted to make him king. He escapes. He goes to the synagogue. People flood the synagogue. Jesus starts teaching, and they start leaving. And so Jesus' ministry decreases from 15,000 to 12, which is over 99% decrease, right? That's not, it's not a good day in ministry. And so my assumption is they would be wondering, are we going to lose? This is not looking good. And yet throughout this passage, Jesus keeps saying these things to remind them that he's in control. In verse 65, He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He's saying, I am in control. God is in control. Verse 70 again, he says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil. Jesus is reminding them time and time again that even though it seems like in this situation, I am losing, even though it seems like the plan of God is losing, I got it. I'm in control. I have this. Could it be that this scenario in which 99% of the disciples left Jesus, could it be that Jesus was preparing them for a time when 100% of the disciples would leave him? When he would go to the cross, where everyone fled from him, where they denied him, where God himself, Jesus' father, forsook him. And Jesus says, you know what? This is part of my sovereign plan. I got this. This will not end in defeat. This will end in victory. 
You know, in the church today, I don't mean this church, I mean church universal, there are Judases. There are people who are part of the church who seem to be walking with Jesus, just like Judas, following Jesus, just like Judas, listening to Jesus, just like Judas. And yet they are opposed to, to Jesus. I don't know who these people are. I'm not. But they exist in the church. You know, I mean, if, if you look at the church, you don't have to be here long to know that it's not perfect. You can look at church history and you can see how messy it is, full of adultery, full of genocide, full of really horrific things. I mean, people have done their best to kill the church. But the church is still here. Because even when God seems to be losing, he is in control. And he says, you know what? I got this. We are here. My church will prevail. And so we see even when Judas goes to betray Jesus, even when Judas turns on Jesus, it is part of God's sovereign plan to redeem his people. So what will you do with the hard sayings of Jesus? What will you do with the hard sayings of Scripture? Will you be like the majority of people, the multitude, take the wide path and turn and walk away? Or will you be like the few that follow Jesus? On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther took a very unpopular stance, a stance that was by far against the many, but it was a biblical stance. He was opposing the indulgences of the Catholic Church. At the time, they were selling people rights to heaven. They were selling little pieces of paper, and if you bought this piece of paper, then someone that you love in purgatory gets to go to heaven, or you get to go to purgatory. And Luther went to the church to try to reform it, not to break it, but to try to reform it and say, no, forgiveness cannot be bought by you or by me. Forgiveness can only be bought by Jesus. Forgiveness is a gift of God. It is not a gift of you. And so he went to confront the church. And part of that, as you may have heard or before, is his posting of his 95 theses. Well, a few years later, Pope Leo the 10th issued a rebuttal of Luther's 95 theses. And then in 1521, the church gathered at the Diet of Worms. You can snicker if you want. The Diet of Worms, which was a a gathering of people to review Martin Luther's theology. And Luther was invited there. Um, He thought to discuss theology, to to talk about his stances. But when he came in, they they, they had all his work laid out on the table. And they said, do you recant? Do you recant of all of these things? And so there was no discussion. It was just simply, do you recant? And Luther asked for some time to consider it. And so they, they permitted that. And he walked, uh, he left. I don't know if it was for a day or more. And he consulted the scriptures. He prayed. He, he went to his friends. And Luther returned with this famous saying. This is just part of it. He says this up on the screen. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I love that. My conscience is captive, not to my desires, not to my whims, not to my passions. It's captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant. 
after this, Luther escaped and some people kidnapped him and hid him because his life was at threat. They deemed him a heretic. They said no one in the empire should give him shelter or food. As a matter of fact, if you see him, you can kill him and you will suffer no consequences. Sharing the truth of God's word is offensive. It's dangerous. We should expect that the correct teaching of God's word will offend many people. This is why I'm weary of a lot of church growth tactics because the church growth tactics are don't teach anything difficult because if you teach things difficult, people will leave. And the problem with this is Jesus. Jesus teaches difficult things and people leave. If we as a church or you as a person teach the teachings of Jesus, they are going to be offensive. And it isn't that we should offend people with our personality. They should know how much we love them, but the teachings of Jesus draw a line in the sand and they offend people. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. You know, Jesus is offensive. The scriptures are offensive. The truth is offensive. The gospel is offensive. The gospel says, listen, I know you think you have some flaws, but you're not giving yourself enough credit. You are way more sinful than that. You are so sinful that you cannot even choose God or know God because you're operating by the flesh. But Jesus Christ came to die for you because that's how much you need it. That's how sinful you are, that you deserve what Jesus got, but he has come to save you. That is an offensive message. But it is, as Peter said, the words of eternal life. You know, if we are teaching the whole counsel of God as a church, as a people, as individuals, the majority of people will walk away offended. They might say, I really like that person. I can't stand what they believe about God. The majority of them walk away if it's anything like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I want to be liked. I want to be popular. I don't want to offend people. But we can choose to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says this. should be up on the screen as well. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, the ones that are perishing, we are the smell of death. To the other, those that are being saved, we are the fragrance of life. See, we get to share this wonderful, beautiful, glorious, offensive message. Because although some might walk away, there are some who will come to faith in Christ. To whom shall we go? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that he is the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would seal this word to our heart, God. Lord, if... uh, if we were as smart as you, <laughs> if we knew life, if we knew ourselves, if we knew you better than you did, you wouldn't even be worth following, Lord. And yet we try to manipulate your word so that it can fit what is palatable to us, to society. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness, and we know that you have granted it to us 
in Christ, and we praise you for that. Lord, pray that we would, that we would be people of the word, that we would soak in it, that we would treasure it, God, that we would not dismiss it as us being too busy for it, but that we would let it confront us, that we would let it disrupt our life, our beliefs, our patterns, and that we would treasure a God who has loved us enough to talk to us, to tell us truth, even when it is hard, and to remind us of his never-ending, always and forever love for us in Christ. In your glorious name we pray. Amen.